Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and thank you so much for joining me on this Thursday edition of the podcast. If you're anywhere in the Northeast, and you look outside, there's probably some smoke because of those wildfires all over Quebec. Here in New York, we are uh, almost like right on the cusp of the second to worst air quality on the index. Walking out this morning, there was ash covering all of the vehicles in the parking lot or in the driveway, I mean. And yeah, it's a little different. Uh, So for the record, today is, if you're listening to this, June 8th, 2023. And stuff is weird. Anyway, everything's weird. Moving on to things we can actually affect. So for the last two episodes, I've been talking a lot about building your team and how to kind of vet them and who you should be looking for to partner with. And it's not a hard and fast set of rules, right? I got a couple of emails who were like, well, what about this? And what about that? I was really trying to check off the big ones. And the reality of it is that everybody's situation is different. Everybody's skill set is different. And so today I'm not going to talk about team building, but I am going to talk about owners, operators, and entrepreneurs. And this applies to everything, not just real estate, but there seems to be a lot more of it in real estate than the trades as far as construction and mechanical aptitude related fields. Just because you're really good at a particular skill in operations, right? can be a technical skill. could be a computer programmer. Not quite the same thing as doing real estate or construction, but you could be a really good computer programmer. You could be a really good electrician, a really good plumber, a really good HVAC guy, a really good property manager, a really good maintenance super, a really good project manager. It doesn't make you a good business owner. It doesn't make you a good marketing guru. So back to building your team to accentuate your positives while minimizing the impact of your negatives. We need to take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror as entrepreneurs, as business owners, as leaders of our businesses, our families, our well-being. Are we the right people to be running our own businesses? And that's the real question today. Not so much how you do the things you do why you opened the business, why you left what you were doing before, but how you operate now as a business owner, entrepreneur, leader, or for those of you who haven't left, who haven't started their own thing, who are looking for partners, still looking for education, still reading all the books and doing the networking and all the other stuff that goes into it. What are you doing to work on your business instead of in your business. 
And I ask that specifically because I see so many people working for someone else, convinced that they can do a better job, convinced that if they just go out on their own, they can make more money, spend more time with their families, go on vacation more, travel where they want, live the way they want. And then they do that. They leave, right? They leave a W-2. They go out, they start doing a job for themselves as a 1099 or a real estate investor or whatever it is. And the freedom thing doesn't really happen. Well, why is that? Well, because a lot of people who get into running their own small business do it because they're good at it. Whatever that function is. If they're maintenance guys, they're like, oh, I can be a handyman. I can be a, a property manager. If they're a computer programmer. They're like, oh, I can, I can start my own company. I can, I can do this for a living. If they're, you know, someone like me, they start being a consultant. But the reality is that being good at and understanding the technical part of the job does not necessarily mean that you can do the job of a business owner, a CEO, a president, a principal, whatever it is. Because the reality is that when you start off, you're going to want to start off with getting some business, getting some jobs under your belt, whatever that may be, and paying the bills. Well, when you're the one with all the experience, you're the one with the technical skill set, even if you hire people, you're still on the hook to train them. You're still on the hook to make sure the jobs are being executed. You're still on the hook to make sure that results are being delivered and that you're paying the bills month to month, including now paying for your employees. So what happens when something like COVID happens? You're basically still working paycheck to paycheck because you're going from one project to the next. You have bills to pay, you have expenses. So yes, you work for yourself. But are you really? Or are you working to pay your bills? Good example of that is people who quit their W-2, want to make money in real estate, and they immediately jump into a couple different things. One is flipping houses, right? They buy a job for themselves. They leave their W-2. They buy a distressed property to fix up and rehab and flip or rent. But we're going to talk about flip right now. They then spend sweat equity. They're not paying themselves necessarily. They bought this project. They're not paying themselves. They hire a couple people to come in and do specific tasks in the building. So they're spending money. And they're like, well, when I flip this thing and I sell it, I'll get paid. Are you going to get paid what your hourly rate should be as a business owner, as that experienced person? Are you going to get paid less than what you were making at your W-2 
when you actually factor in your time hourly. Yes, there's a there's a value to freedom. Yes, there's a value to being your own boss and making your own hours, but you still have to get the work done. So you bought yourself a job. And hopefully, when you sell it, the amount of money you spent will pay for your labor that you spent on it. Most investors I see who do that, it does not pay for their time. And they burn out. And they leave. They stop. They quit. They run away. Right? Just like people who make podcasts. Yeah, I'm looking at you, buddy. You made three podcasts. You put them out there. And then you stopped making them because you didn't get the results you expected. You made three podcasts, bro. No shit no one's going to watch them. They're out of date. They're not current. Your first three or four podcasts were probably hot garbage on fire anyway, just like mine. Sorry to everybody who had to listen to that. They're probably still not very good, and I'm on like, I don't know, this is like nine or ten. But anyway, the reality is that your first go-round is going to suck with almost anything you do, whether it's a new job as a W-2, or whether it's running a small business or doing a podcast or whatever. The other thing I see people do is they want to make money with no money down or very little money down. How do they do it? Wholesaling. That's right. Contract assignment for a living. In case you didn't know, if wholesaling was easy, there would be a lot more successful people out there wholesaling. It is a lot of work. You are basically, if you're going to go out and you're going to be a wholesaler, you are not going to create freedom or wealth for yourself. You're creating a job that requires 40 to 80 hours a week, that requires spending some money on marketing and networking and all the other stuff that goes with it. And then your payoffs come in fits and starts, right? Feast or famine. And then you're right back at it because you're living paycheck to paycheck. And it might be bigger paychecks, right? You might wholesale, you know, 5, 10, 15 average amount of money on a wholesale fee nationwide is like 14 grand, which is nothing to sneeze at. But at the same time, you know, 10 times 14 is 140K minus your income taxes and all the other stuff. And you're working 40 to 80 hour weeks. So yes, it can be a hand up. It can help you, but it's not going to generate wealth unless you take that money and you do it, do something with it that's going to continue to pay back without you having to physically be involved in the process. So where are you going? What is your plan? For a long time, I think the book was written maybe in the 70s, people have been saying, well, you're stuck working in your business, not on your business. And then there's never an explanation of what that actually means or who the person is that gets trapped in that. Because they've probably never actually read the book. But the reality is that the vast majority of people in real estate get into real estate not because their parents wanted them to or taught them about it or brought them into the fold. In my experience, 
entry-level real estate, right? Single family, small multifamily, real estate investors organizations in, in various cities. They're made up of Joe Blow, who's working a W-2 that they don't like, or that doesn't have the freedom that they like, or that watched a TV show on HDTV, and now they want to be a real estate investor to you know, cut their W-2 and make a ton of money and travel because they're believing what they see on Instagram and TV. I will tell you right now that real estate is not that path. I will tell you that 95% of people investing in real estate, even if they're making money, do not create freedom for themselves because they're actively managing that business. They're creating a job. They're buying a job for themselves. So yes, they make money. Do they make more money now than they did? Absolutely. If they're doing the right thing and they own the assets, they are creating generational wealth. There is nothing wrong with that. But they lose sight of their goals. They lose sight of the reality of where they're at and what they're doing, why they did what they did to get where they are now. Because when there's money coming in and you own stuff, things are good. But you're working. You've created a job for yourself. Some people are workaholics. Cool. Good for you. I work to live. I don't live to work. I used to live to work. Back in the day when I was, you know, 18 years old, 19, 20, part, you know, full-time college, part-time working, working nights, working weekends, running a store. And then, you know, you get that phone call, hey, we want to give you a assistant manager position making significantly more than you have any business making at 19 years old. You drop out of college, take the job, work 60-hour weeks minimum. Then they make you a store manager a couple of years later of your own box that you're responsible for all hire, fire, purchasing, operations, deliveries, customer service, the whole nine yards. You're leading a team. You're 21 years old and you're working 80-hour weeks. And then... You know, 10 years after that, you get a call from someone else who wants to make you a district manager at 28. Well, I guess it would be eight years later. And you're working 60 to 80 hour weeks in corporate America, getting your teeth kicked in because you have to be politically correct and you have to take people's feelings into account as opposed to working at a lumberyard where you're like, oh, you're bleeding? And just pack some dirt in it and walk it off. So yes, publicly traded companies do operate slightly differently than privately owned companies where they give you complete entrepreneurial control of the store that you operate as a manager. That's neither here nor there. But the reality is that I see people who are very good at specific things, very good at HVAC, motivated to succeed, trying to do the right thing, want to create generational wealth for their families. They go out, they leave their W-2 working for that HVAC company, or that electrician, or that plumber, or that framer, they start their own business. Except now, instead of just doing the technical stuff, which they still have to do to pay the bills, now they're taking that 40-hour-a-week job doing the technical stuff, and they want to grow and expand and scale, so they can't just pay the bills for themselves, they have to do more. So now they're working 50-hour weeks to create freedom to take care of their families. That now they're not seeing for 10 more hours a week. 
And then they have to hire somebody. Well, now they're training them. So now they're at 55 hours a week just because of the extra time explaining stuff to them and having to manage another employee. Oh, and they have to be their marketing people. Like, yeah, they have to hire, they can hire a marketing consultant, right? They can hire a marketing agency. Who creates the content and establishes what the voice of the company is? You gonna let the marketing person do that? Or are you the business owner that understands how you want to be perceived in the marketplace and who your core customer is? Or maybe you don't understand who your core customer is and they're going to help you with that. But either way, as the owner and the only one who really knows what the heck is going on, you have to create the content. Yes, your marketing person can make it look pretty and slap it out there and get it, you know, on social media and in front of people and whatever, but you're still on the hook to make the content, which is a time sink. So now you're at 60 hours a week. Now, let's back it up. We'll go 58 hours a week. Okay, so now you're 58 hours a week. Oh, and, well, while you might hire an accountant, or you, you know, 1099, or you might hire a bookkeeper, or maybe you just use a CPA once a year, you have to do your books. You have to manage your money. Income and outflow. Are you looking at the future or are you just looking at paying the bills? Are you taking the time to establish numbers on what every process costs you and how much each customer makes you? If you take a thousand calls a month, which is unrealistic for a sole proprietor, but we're going to throw it out there a thousand calls a month, and you get business from 300 of them, so say a little less than two-thirds, or a little, little less than a third, and then each one, after travel time and expenses and whatever, let's say you make 200 bucks that you can put into profit for the company, right? So 200 bucks, 300 customers, six grand. Can you afford to hire an employee for six grand a month? Maybe. Yeah. So you bring somebody in six grand a month. Now you're making zero. You're paying your bills. You're paying yourself and your family. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe you're not paying yourself. But you're expanding. So that's good, right? But you're expanding and not actually make, paying yourself. So can you really afford to expand? If you're not actually taking money out of the business to feed your family and pay your bills. How does that work? Anyway, moving on. You can see where this is going. We're going to keep adding things in, adding expenses, making more money, working more hours. Because you're working in your business, not on your business. You have to do things. You have to check the box. You have to make it go. You have to make the money. You have to pay the bills. Cool. That's working in your business. The technical stuff is in your business. On your business is the other stuff like finding out how to scale. Building the relationships that will bring you money over time because they will hunt you down and hand you money to do the work. Hopefully, they're not handing you the money. At some point, hopefully, they're handing your employees the money so you can actually live the life you want and have the company run by someone else. 
But I'm going to say again, 90-95% of the time, that is not happening. You've created yourself another W-2 without the W-2 actually attached to it, unless you file as an S-Corp, and then there's a W-2. So, what are you doing to move the needle to change from being an operator and a doer to a leader and a delegator? In my experience, a good leader is involved in 20% of the business. 20%. The first 10% is at the idea phase, at conception, at planning, organization, strategy. And the other 10% should be at the end. And the resolution, the AAR, uh, after action report, the numbers, and then the 80% in the middle, that's where your team should be doing things for you. Are you there? Can you look in the mirror and say, I can walk away from my company for a week and not answer the phone? and not have to worry about returning an email or a text for seven days and just be in the moment with my family? Or are you working in your business? And it's an important difference, not just because I see a lot of good, qualified technicians operators, doers, start businesses and fall flat on their faces. But because I see the same lack of planning in how real estate operates and functions. Flipping houses is a short-term game. Okay? I will say that outright. I have nothing against house flippers. I'm friends with a ton of them. I know a ton of people who started as flippers. There's good money to be made in flipping houses. The quality of the product that they leave behind to the people who buy those houses or operate those properties for rent is a totally different animal, right? Race to the bottom. Costs more in the long run than what they save from buying the cheapest stuff to throw in there. But again, it's not their problem because they either don't own it at all or they only stick it with a 12-month warranty. Same thing with home building. Same thing when apartments go up. Same thing when hotels are built. I have been to hotels that are two years old that look like they're 40 years old because they use such cheap crap in them. Same exact thing with apartments. And the, the part that kills me on the apartments, and I'm going to keep harping on this because I think it's absolutely stupid, is when these companies build a development, a complex for rent, they spend millions of dollars over a year or two to flesh these things out. And they'll legitimately put a product with a two or three year lifespan in instead of paying the 10% more for something that'll last five to 10 years. Because they have a budget that they created in their heads 
without looking five years down the road at the fact that that product is going to cost them 30% more and degrade their NOI for the next four years. They're lowering the value of their apartment complex because their NOI is going down. And sometimes it's a lot of money. $50,000 at a six cap is $600,000 in value. Roughly. Did I do the math on that right? It doesn't matter. Anyway, let's just pretend. It's $50,000 worth of additional revenue, additional NOI, is $600,000 in property value at a six cap. This should not be a difficult conversation to have with someone who's building the property they're going to manage and own to not cut off their nose to spite their face during the construction process. Your budget is wrong. Anyway, working in your business instead of on your business is much the same. Because you're, instead of building a legacy, instead of building a system and scaling to establish your own freedom, what you're doing is you are building a system to create a 40 to 60 to 80 hour a week job for yourself as a business owner. Let me be very clear that what your employees think about how you live your life, how you spend your money, where you go, and what you do is completely irrelevant to running the business. You did not start a company. You did not start investing. You did not start trying to find ways to create success for yourself to be beholden to a W-2 employee or their opinions. If they wanted the kind of freedom that you're working for, they would start their own business, people. Don't let people drag you down. What they think and what they say behind your back is completely irrelevant. They wouldn't have a job with you in your company if you did not do what it took to create that position. You owe them nothing, and you, as long as you're giving them compensation for the value that they bring to your business, to you, to your operation, that can be the end of the relationship. Now, in corporate America, I used to have a saying, and I heard it from a few other leaders, where you don't have to like me to work with me. It's a little different in your own personal operation. Because if it's your brainchild, your baby, your business, the same reason that you're working 60 to hour, 80 hour weeks in it to make it succeed, to take care of your family, to pay your bills, to keep your W-2 employees, you know, also p being able to pay their bills. Part of the reason you're there is because you really like it. And there's another saying that 
you know, no one is ever going to care about your business as deeply as you do when you're a business owner. And that is absolutely the truth. Because for them, it's a job. For you, it's probably a passion project. It is for me. I love what I do. I liked what I did when I was working for 84 Lumber and Home Depot. That's why the first thing I did when I left was go into advising big multifamily operations on their procurement. And then as I, you know, got into it a little deeper, I found out, well, if procurement is running properly, right, as I bought all these awesome procurement books that you can see on the thing, and I bought all these awesome consulting books and all these strategy books and all the other stuff, as I'm, you know, continuing my course of self-education and entrepreneurial whatever, I'm finding that, no, there is really no connection in construction and real estate between procurement and the executive suite, procurement and risk management, procurement and compliance. And yet, when we look at some of the largest, most successful multi-billion dollar companies that are out there, whether or not they're in, you know, uh, uh, IT or manufacturing or technology or whatever it is, their procurement function is so core to their business that it literally controls everything except the executive suite. There's businesses out there that create chief procurement officer roles to go right along side by side with operations and strategy and finance. Because if you look at what procurement is supposed to be, procurement is supposed to be complete control of every single input in your business to make your business operate, which means that signing contracts, hiring people, outside contractors and stuff, doing all of your purchasing, deciding what products are being used, deciding how they're being used, deciding where they're going, all of that stuff is being aligned strategically at the very top of the organization by that chief procurement officer. And it creates innovation because instead of just buying something to, to patch a hole, patch a gap, a, a, adopt a process, what it's doing is it's addressing the business needs of the business as a whole as determined by the executive suite. It's addressing compliance because it, if you're putting things in that are going to be found later to be illegal or not meeting code or not meeting standards, you're going to be in trouble. That also helps to address risk management, but risk management should be looking at cost avoidance and exposure risk. So if your procurement is integrating your risk management practice, it should be looking at what your insurance costs are and how to minimize the expenses on that side of it. And it also addresses, obviously, the need to maintain and operate your properties. For and, and it should cover all of those, right? Procurement should be a business unit that solves your business problems. And while this is making people's eyes glaze over, I'm sure, please don't turn off the podcast. Anyway, um, while this is making people's eyes glaze over, the reality is that the vast majority of small operators have no procurement function whatsoever. It's a purchasing only function and it is literally... I just need to buy this today. I don't give a crap if it fails in five years. Because they're not thinking that far down the road. Because they're not looking at total cost of ownership. Because they're not familiar with, don't know about, don't care about the TCO method. Which is why I'm doing this. This is a passion project, right? 
I'm one of those people who's very good at technical things, very good at operating, that left the W-2 and created a job for myself. Now, the nice part is, or maybe it's not so nice, as you find out when you start consulting, about 50% of your time is spent doing marketing and finding business, and the other 50% is actually working the projects for the customer. So, the ideal for me is to create and automate some IP because I make all of my money through my intellectual property. It's to create systems that will allow me to scale. So this podcast is part of that, right? Maybe someday in some alternate reality, there will be a TCO method online course thing. It'd be cool. I'm not there yet. I just don't have the time because guess what? I'm working in my business <laughs> instead of on my business. The podcast is on my business. I'm working in my business in order to pay the bills that I need to pay to keep the business afloat, feed my family, pay for my toys, take my vacations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm fortunate because I don't have to work this job 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week. Have I? Yeah, there's been weeks I've worked 60 hours. Is it all the time? No. What's my average week? 20 to 40 hours, probably. But, you know, there's also weeks when it's six hours. It just depends. So I've, I've been blessed with, you know, the places I've been and the jobs I've held down and the relationships I've been able to build through those other jobs where I didn't have to work necessarily as hard as maybe somebody else who's trying to break into this industry. Because I already had most of the relationships. But again, guess what? Technical guys who started businesses for themselves and worked in their business instead of on their business and are still doing it and don't have a plan for five years from now are in the same boat. Now, five-year plan, if you have one, rip it up and throw it in the garbage. Because they're, they're, they're literally trash. It's like looking into a crystal ball. You need to, in my opinion anyway, you need to be establishing milestones in your head. Write them down and then work towards them. And whether it takes you a month or a year or two years or five years, you want to work towards them. Look at them every day. Build your team. Make your plan around the realities of your situation what you're good at and what you're not, and work towards those goals every day. You want to replace your income as a W-2, your side gigging? Write it down. You want to replace your wife's income as a W-2 or your husband's income as a W-2? Write it down. You want to take a vacation to Italy for two months? Write it down. Make it happen. It's not that easy but you have to keep your eye on the ball. When I talk about total cost of ownership and doing things that will pay for themselves within five years, three years, you know, minimizing your expenses over five years versus buying something that's going to start costing you money in a year or two. There's no master plan strategy. There's no actual total cost of ownership accounting like they do it in IT and manufacturing where you're going to know every single cost of labor, fuel, electricity, 
space, overhead, operations, software, programming, all the things that go into total cost of ownership. The goal isn't to know those numbers because knowing the numbers is meaningless because there's so many moving parts in real estate. The point is to minimize those numbers without sacrificing labor, without sacrificing quality, without sacrificing income, without costing yourself more money in the long run, which is why it's so important to know how long you plan to own something for when you're going into it. Because if you just, if you're only going to own it for a month, it doesn't make sense to put a bunch of stuff in that's going to pay for itself over five years. Because if you're going to own it for a month, you only need to worry about it for a month, right? That's where flippers come in and home builders come in because it's the same thing. They're only going to own that warranty for a year. So they don't need to use the best of the best. But if you're going to buy one of those properties to rent, you're going to buy one of those properties to live in, wouldn't it be nice to know something's going to fail in a certain amount of time? Or wouldn't it be nice to know that if you spill water on the floor, if you don't mop it up within seven minutes, the floor is going to swell up like a balloon and start to come apart? These are things that, you know, they're realities. You can't undo what's been done, but it would be nice to have the ability to plan around some of it. And so that's kind of the goal and part of this conversation that I'm now going to end because we're way past time. Sorry, everybody. The goal is to create freedom for yourself. The goal is to create wealth for yourself and future generations of your family. The goal is to minimize the amount of work and maximize the amount of profit. If you're a technical operator and you don't have the right team or you don't have the right skill sets on the team to be able to step away from your business and have it run for seven days without your involvement in any way, total radio silence, going dark for seven days. If you can't do that, you need to start figuring out how to make that happen. Thank you for listening. This is the last episode where we're going to talk about teams and team building and all that stuff. And I appreciate your time. Please like, subscribe, comment, go to the website, check it out, tcomethod.com. Should be up in a couple days in its final form, or at least most recent form. Spread the word. I appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Stay out of the smoke.